0: Thank you to the worship team for leading us in worship this morning. Thanks to uh, David on the rhythm. I noticed he can keep a different rhythm in one hand than on the drum. And I think blessings that I'm not the guy up there doing rhythm and leading you all astray. Well, uh, before we get into the word this morning, uh, I'd like us to, to pray together today. Thank you. Lord, Heavenly Father, as was prayed this morning, Lord. We thank you for the gift of fathers. We thank you that you are the ultimate model, Lord, for all of us. You are a God of compassion. You are also a God of justice. You are a God of great faithfulness and persistence. You are the God who seeks out the lost. I Thank you that you... uh, are the one who sent your son, Jesus. Lord, uh, as a parent, I know how beloved our children are. And our instinct is to do whatever we can to protect our children. And, uh, and Father, we thank you that though you had an only son, you wanted all of your children, Lord, to be saved. And Lord, that is the center of the gospel. It is a sacrificial love, a great faithfulness that we continue to, uh, that not only saves us, Lord, but continues to sustain us and will be the hallmark of who you are right to eternity. And so, Lord, we are a people who gather under the sign of the cross out of your love, great love for us. Lord, I think today of of people who have uh, lost loved ones, maybe lost a father, maybe even in one of the recent tragedies, whether it be the accident that took place in Manitoba this week, or whether it be in one of the conflicts in the world, or whether it be to illness, and for whom there is an empty space and even more so an empty place. Lord, I pray that you would fill that space, that you would comfort the brokenhearted, as you so often do, that you would strengthen and sustain. And Lord, as we open up your word, we, we pray that your spirit, Lord, would open up the eyes of our hearts, that we would see you, that you would speak into the very heart of where we are at, whether we are in need of a divine encouragement or challenge or hope, that you would, uh, Lord, be at work among us today. Amen. I remember uh, a few years ago, Quebec firefighters were responding to a call to help from their American counterparts, but they got a surprise at the border crossing. The Anchorage Inn in Rousse's Point, New York, had caught fire, likely because of an electrical problem, and the Rousse's Fire Department, as they often did, sent out a call for backup from neighboring towns, including their colleagues just minutes away, across the border at uh, Lacolle, Quebec. Something they had done before. So the crews from Lacolle hopped in their trucks and they rushed to help. But instead of being rushed across the border as they had been in the past, they were stopped and asked for identification. Well, of course, seeing how they were dressed in their gear, most of the firefighters, except for the driver, they didn't have their ID with them. And as a result, they were delayed about 10 minutes at the border Before they could reach the destination and give the fellow firefighters the help they so desperately needed. Well, good teamwork is a vital part of life. Especially when we encounter situations beyond our own ability to handle. The house churches in Galatia which began in response to Paul's missionary work years earlier, had become increasingly divided with self-appointed border guards telling them who was and who wasn't acceptable to God. Now, while good teamwork had been their new aim, and they had been growing in that, the new merit-based system, instead of grace-based, by some of the false teachers, it was infecting the group with envy and pride. And uh, merit-based systems always do that because we're in competition or we're trying to measure up. As opposed to grace-based systems, we're all here only because of God's grace. That breeds humility instead. So if the church in Galatia was going to keep in step with the Spirit, as we looked at last week, and embody God-like values, they would need to learn to work together in supportive and accountable relationships. Let us look at Galatians chapter 6. We're going to finish Galatians today. Galatians 6, beginning of verse 1. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves, or you may also be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks they are something when they are not, they deceive themselves. Each one should test their own actions. Then they can take pride in themselves alone without comparing themselves to someone else. For each should carry their own load. Nevertheless, the one who receives instruction in the word should share all good things with their instructor. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please their flesh, from the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially those who belong to the family of believers." See what large letters I use as I write to you with my own hand? Those who want to impress people by means of the flesh are trying to compel you to be circumcised. The only reason they do this is to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. Not even those who are circumcised keep the law, yet they want you to be circumcised that they may boast about your circumcision in the flesh. May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, Well, here in this chapter, we have what might appear to be a number of random thoughts, you know, bearing one another's burdens, sharing with one's teacher, sowing and reaping, doing good. But looking at it more closely, what we find here are two threads that we need to weave into the fabric of our life together. One is corporate responsibility, and the other is personal accountability, The first mark of a spirit-filled team, Paul says, is that people care for one another. In fact, if you were to look for one another passages, I remember reading a book a number of years ago, 59 passages that talk about one another, love one another, care for one another, uh, a variety of things. And Paul proceeds to give a specific example, a scenario or situation in which someone is caught in a sin. And, and he tells us how also the family of God should respond to this kind of situation. Now, the Greek word that Paul uses for caught here, prolambano in Greek, it can mean either, you know, you've been caught doing something wrong, maybe by someone else, or it can mean you've inadvertently been, been caught, trapped, we would say, by sin. And Paul may well have in mind a person caught or trapped by one of the sins of the flesh that he referred to in the earlier chapter. Or he may have in mind a person caught by the sins associated with the legalism, you know, the judgmentalism, the pride and envy. Every and any and every sin is destructive in some way, both to the person who sins and the persons who are sinned against. And given Paul's earlier warnings, uh, remember those in chapter 5? He talked about, um, in 5 verse 15, he said, If you bite and devour each other, watch out, or you will be destroyed by each other. And in the end of that chapter, let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. It appears that their replacement of grace-based faith or religion with works-based religion, had fostered competitiveness and division, instead of cooperation and unity. As uh, N.T. Wright notes, it is desperately easy for this kind of attitude to creep into any church. Divisions in the wider society, and he gives examples, caste, class, income, color, the sort of home you live in, etc., can quickly lead one group of Christians to look down on the other, And often the others sneer back. So whatever form sin takes, the truly caring response to someone caught in sin is not to turn a blind eye. It's not my problem. It's not to look down on them. Oh, I don't have that problem. But to come alongside them to help. There but for the grace of God go I. And Paul says, restore that person gently. And the word restore in translated restore in Greek, kartidzo, is used elsewhere in the New Testament when the disciples are fixing or mending their nets. Kartidzo. And so they are doing that, of course, so that their nets are in full working order again. And restoration is always God's goal for us. And it requires, Paul says, one of the fruits of the Spirit that he referred to earlier. That of gentleness. Gentleness. Remember being a kid? And uh, I can't remember what I was doing. But you get knots in the hair. You know? And who did I want? I wanted my mother, who would be gentle with me. I think it was glue in the hair. To try to get, get those knots out, right? You want gentleness. Or if you've got a sliver. All right? All right? You want someone who's going to tend to it, but gentle, be gentle, right? It's easy to be critical and judgmental of others' failures, but it takes love to get involved in another person's life and gentleness to help restore them. But it also, Paul says, requires caution on our part. Caution, because he says, or watch out, or you also may be tempted. It may be that we're tempted by the same sin. We are all vulnerable. Really, we are. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 12 says, Paul says to the Corinthians, if you think you are standing firm, like, that's not going to happen to me. He said, take care, lest you fall. Or Paul may also be thinking about You know, you may be tempted by pride or feeling superior. As uh, verses 3 and 4. If anyone thinks they are something when they are not, they deceive themselves. And and not measuring yourself against others, but, you know, against yourself. And the general principle behind the illustration of verse 1 is, as Paul says in verse 2, carry each other's burdens. In this way, he says, if you're going to follow a law... Okay, this is one law you can follow. Follow the law of the love. The law of Christ, he calls it. That Christ by his spirit engraves rights upon our heart. Of course, there's an assumption here behind this command to bear one another's burdens. And it is that we all have burdens. Amen? Yeah. And God does not intend for any of us to carry them alone. Some of us try to put up a I-have-it-all-together front, knowingly or unknowingly. And we may even think that this is a sign of strength and maturity that we don't burden other people with our problems. But even Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane asked his disciples to pray with him. That is genuine Christ-like spirituality. And while it is true that 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 7 says that we are to cast all of our cares or anxiety upon the Lord because he cares for us, it is interesting that one of the primary ways that God often does that is he often cares for us through one another. Um, for example, I'm reminded of Paul. He said to the Corinthians, on him that as Christ we have set our hope that he will continue to deliver us and then he says, as you help us by your prayers. Or he also says later in 2 Corinthians, but God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. Ah, that's the form that God's comfort took when Titus came. I felt like I was comforted by you, you sent him, Lord. And so that's often how God cares for us. Now, when we go on to the next verses, it may not be clear exactly how Paul's challenge in verses 3 and 4 fits with his call to carry each other's burdens. But given his earlier word of caution that we talked about being tempted when another is caught in sin, it seems that he's giving a warning once again of another kind of temptation that burden bearers can fall into, pride. It's, It's always a temptation when helping a person work through their problem, you know, or a specific area of weakness to think that, that we must be more spiritual or mature than they are. Notice in, in verse 13, Paul will say, Not even those who are circumcised keep the law, yet they want you to be circumcised. You know, like they tell you that they may boast about your circum That, oh yeah, we taught them, to, we helped them to become real Christians. No, we don't really live up to that standard either. They wouldn't say that, but I think there's that illustration of that. Or, or Jesus will talk about when you help another, you know, uh, he's talking about the problem of judgmentalism. And, you know, deal with the log in your own eye before trying to take the speck out of your brother, sister's eye. And comparisons are misguided. For there is not one person among us who does not have areas both of great strength and great weakness. You know, I, I may not have a, a temptation to get drunk, but I've been told on a number of occasions that I have a fairly strong competitive streak in me. Apparently it shows itself even when I'm not in a competition, like you know at playing pickleball or badminton at a recreational church event. I don't know, but it's it just... You know i'm trying and i just think man you didn't see me when i was really competitive (laughs) this is only this is what it looks like when the spirits already put some reins on it you know we're all given a different set of abilities opportunities family histories to work with that vary widely i i work with a uh, on an advisory council uh, for abuse prevention and response. And I was talking to two of the ladies. They they work regularly in the prison system with the women there, helping them work through uh, abusive past. And, uh, and they have said to me on more than one occasion, but they said when we met recently again, you know, when we hear these stories, we think this is where I would be if I experienced what they went through. How would I respond any differently? And it's really... They said, it's just brought out compassion. We keep doing this work because it is so important. Because that could be us. That could have been us. So in the, in the final analysis, each one, Paul says, should test his or her own actions before God without comparing him or herself to anybody else. And in the instruction in verse 5, that each should carry their own load. That seems kind of like a contradiction to what he said earlier. Bear one another's burdens. Right, um, But a comparison of the Greek word here is helpful. Burden in verse 2 and the one translated load in verse 5. In verse 2, the word burden, baros in Greek, it is a, a weight or heavy load that just, you know, you cannot carry on your own. It would crush you. Okay? I think about moving. You know, it's moving day. It's that really large piece of furniture like, if I tried to pick up that couch and put it on my back, you know, I'd be under that couch, right? If that's a load, uh, or a burden, I mean. And then there's a load. That was a, a common term for, like, a person's pack that they are carrying. We might think of a backpack in our day, right? And so, in moving day, it's the boxes. Yeah, you could take that box by yourself, but you're not going to be moving the furniture by yourself. And so, we have a corporate responsibility to... to to help bear one another's burdens which are too heavy to bear alone but there is a box or backpack of personal responsibility for which we are accountable to God you know there's heavy burdens sometimes a crisis in life is a temporary thing where we need help right we cannot carry that alone and sometimes some of those crises they become ongoing Right? And then it becomes the challenge because how do you adjust to this isn't just a temporary reality, but a long term reality. Caring for an aging parent can be one of those things. Or yes, suddenly you find yourself as a single parent for one reason or another. And there are supports needed. Sometimes those supports are physical, right? Maybe it's help moving or maybe it's uh, learning to work or live at a different pace. It can be emotional. It can be needing to listen or to pray with. It can be relational. Maybe you're widowed, and it's a lot lonelier now. Maybe it's health or financial or spiritual. They are burdens that we need someone to help alleviate. And yet there's also loads. Chores, I think of it. When I was from young, boy, we learned chores. I was still in preschool, I think, when I was helped gathering eggs. We had chickens laid eggs. I could reach the lower tier. I think now it probably took me half an hour just to get <laughs> one carton of eggs. Uh, but I was learning to, do, to carry my own load right, of chores. And that's, respo- that's important. And when the day comes and I meet my maker, he will not ask me how I did compared to others. I hope he doesn't. Dave, you and Billy Graham, like... uh, You didn't really measure up there. No, I hope he doesn't do that. No. But he's going to ask me whether I did what he asked me to do. Were you the one that I called you to be and equipped you to be? In verse 6, Paul addresses another illustration of corporate responsibility. That of sharing with, supporting those who provide instruction in God's word. And I think the reason that he addresses the issue here is most likely a clarification of his previous uh, remarks in verse 5 about each person carrying his or her own load. Paul, they all knew, was a self-supporting missionary. He was literally a tent maker. He made tents. That's how he supported himself. And in verse Corinthians 9, he explains why he went against what was normal. The normal thing was the teachers got paid, they got reimbursed, supported by those that were being instructed. But Paul never did that, and the Corinthians thought, you must not real, be a real teacher, and he will explain why he did that. Standard practice, as Paul states there and here, is that the one who restra- receives instruction in the Word should share all good things with their instructor. Elsewhere, Paul talks in more detail about the right of a teacher, and he says, "I didn't use that right." And he says to the Corinthians to receive support. And here he he emphasizes the responsibility instead of those who are taught. So one he emphasizes about he's talking to the teachers; the other ones he's talking to those who are taught. And even though Paul tried to be self-supporting, it was a challenge to balance his work as a tent maker and his work of sharing the gospel. Especially when he had times where he was gravely ill and times when he was imprisoned. And in Paul's other letters, indeed, he mentions times in his life when he also relied on the generosity of others. To support him in his mission. In his long letter to the Romans, when you get past all of the wonderful theology and application of that, he gets in chapter 15 near the end, he says, Oh, and I hope to visit you while passing through and to have you assist me on my journey, that is my missionary journey, to lands that have not yet heard about Christ. And in Philippians, in chapter 4, verse 16, near the end of la- that letter, it comes out, and he says, You sent me aid more than once when I was in need. And so, even him for the principle, there were still times where he needed support. Now, in verses 7 to 8, Paul seems to return to his earlier theme of walking in the Spirit, crucifying our flesh with its passions and desires. And I think he is doing that, especially if we look at the verse that follows. But if verse, if, uh, if verse 7 is actually following out of verse 6, then, as commentator N.T. Wright suggests, then Paul would be applying this principle of of a man reaps what he sows to what he has just said about giving financial support or practical support to those in ministry. So he says, If church members sow to the Spirit by giving solid practical support to the church's ministries, especially preaching and teaching, they themselves in due course will reap a harvest. If, however, they sow to the flesh, spending their resources on the numerous pleasures of ordinary life, then all they will have to show for it will be the corruption and decay to which everything in the world is ultimately subject. Paul is eager that ordinary Christians in Galatia should do good to everybody. And general phrases in that day like that were often referring to financial contributions in civic life. They didn't have, you know, uh, they required on donors to help with civic projects and also in community life and especially to the family of faith. You know, I remember years ago when the the market uh, tanked and I was looking at some of my investments and, and they weren't doing very well. And then God reminded me, but you remember those investments that you had been making in some of the global change the world projects? And I recently got a report from one of those. Um, actually, one that we had done, helping some of the people in Colombia, in, in, outside of Bogota, where they'd had a kind of a flash flood, and houses had been washed away, and we got a report of that. And we collected money to help rebuild some of those homes of people in the church. And we got a report back. And it was so encouraging. And he says, what do you think about that investment? And I thought, I love that investment. That was a great investment. And I think that's what he's talking about here. You want to invest in the ministry of what God is doing. In the church, but also in the world. Our resources are a sacred trust. And wise people invest their resources, their, their treasure, you know, money, their time, their talents. Their talents. In what will have a lasting benefit and harvest. Now, sometimes, often, I don't know, sometimes we have to live by faith rather than sight in these matters. Because what and who we are investing in, it just, there aren't any signs that there's a harvest happening right now. And thus, Paul's words about not growing weary or giving up. Paul, of all people, knew this especially given the time and energy that he had poured into the Galatians themselves. He had planted that church out of great hardship and then got them going. They were going so well, and then he gets report. It's like they've forgotten everything you told them, Paul. Everything you showed them. Only to have them actually turn away and begin following some false teachers instead. Maybe some of you are probably at a very discouraging place in your life. Maybe it's in your work, in your workplace. Maybe it's your work as parents. Maybe you've spent a lifetime investing your heart and soul in children or grandchildren or in neighbors, and you don't see the results. And you're like, I'm, I'm growing weary and doing good. It's not worth it. And you wonder, you know, where's the harvest? Maybe you're growing weary in caring for an aging parent. Or juggling challenges at work. Or or serving in the church. I think what we need is verse 9. Write it on a post-it note. Let us not become weary in doing good. For at the proper time we will reap harvest if we do not give up. And, And post that somewhere as a reminder this week. Paul then has a a series of closing comments in verses 11 to 18. He's suddenly in verse 11. See, I'm writing in big letters. He's probably asked the person that he was dictating the letter to, here, I'm going to finish the letter off in my own hand. And he writes these final thoughts himself. And when he writes in closing is really what he is, is that when it's all said and done, what matters most In their current controversy is the cross of Christ. Remember what matters most. This is the heart of everything for Paul. If you feel that you have to boast, he says, well, then boast in the cross. That is, boast in what Christ has done, not how well you are measuring up to someone else. That kind of boasting is a dead end. If you have to boast, boast in Christ. There's enough there to boast for a lifetime of what he has done and is doing don't boast about your religious achievements. They're so shallow in comparison. And he says, may I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And what matters is what Christ has done to unleash upon the world, he says, new creation. The new creation has broken into time in the cross and in the resurrection. Remember Christ said, I'm making all things new. And even the Israel of God, he calls these Gentile Galatians the Israel of God. Interesting. Why would he do that? Thought that was reserved for the Jewish people. And they may have well been, you know, the, these other religious teachers who were Jews may well have been telling them, no, to be true Israelites, you know, you need to follow the Israelite way. And Paul says, no, you are the true Israel of God. Because you are following Christ who fulfilled the mission of Israel and called you to be his people. You have been marked out. You are Israelites by spiritual birth, by the birth of the Spirit. That's what makes you a true child of God, not one from the flesh. You know, by, uh, it is by spiritual birth. And you have the Spirit in you, God's children. And Paul in verse 17 says, basically says he's a marked man. He's a marked man. He's got scars. He's gone through beatings. He's been left for dead, all for, uh, for what he has been saying about Christ and the opposition he's experienced. And we often think scars are kind of ugly, you know? I remember I got a scar over my eye and I did not want that to be a big ugly scar, you know? Went and got it sewed up. Paul's got scars. They weren't sewed up nicely. And he says, these are not ugly marks. I think he thinks he's come to see their beauty marks. Just like the marks that Christ had. Remember after he was resurrected in his new body? It's like, no more scars. No, he's got the scars. Because those scars are reminders of his love for us. And I think Paul is saying, this is like, I'm just trying. They're just the love that I'm expressing for Christ. These, these scars, they're not ugly marks, they're beauty marks, like the scars that Christ bore for me. Those are beauty marks. I am so glad he has those to eternity. Well, I want to close with a, a living illustration of teamwork. Now, sometimes there's parables in life, things that happen. Jesus so often used regular occurrences in life as pointing to a spiritual reality. Uh, many of you are probably familiar with this, but growing up in the prairies, we always saw a geese flying, and it was always in a V formation. I never knew why for years. But you might consider the fact that science discovered why they fly that way. Each bird, when it flaps its wings, creates uplift, draft. And uh, the, so that it actually makes it easier for the bird following them. If you're the bird at the end, you hardly need to fly, You've got like a 70-80% lift doing it for you. So the goose at the front, when he gets tired, he goes all the way to the back to rest. And then the geese also honk from behind. I wonder what they're honking, eh? Faster! Move it! Get out of the road! No, they're honking encouragement. That's what they're doing. But I wonder, what do we, what do we honk when we're behind someone? And finally this is important when a goose gets sick maybe it's injured drops out of formation at least two other geese will go and and fly down with that one and fall and to help lend aid and protection and they stay with that goose until it's able to fly or until it passes away and only then then do they launch back out on their own to rejoin the formation to catch up with their group. And if we have the sense of a goose, we will stand by each other like that. And so uh, maybe we can see the V. You see in the church, we always have the cross, right? And Paul is saying, that's front and center. It's not just how you got to become part of the people of God. It is how you now embody what Christ has done in how you live together and how you engage in the world. You are a cruciform, a cross-shaped existence. And my homework for this week, I don't know if you uh, did the surrender sign each day. I did five out of seven days, I remembered. You know, it's not, Catholics, they do the sign of the cross. So I'm I'm saying, you know, if you think that's Catholic, then be a Catholic for a week. But I want you to just, to mark, sometime in the day, mark yourself with the sign of the cross. As a reminder, this is, this is, I'm living under the sign of the cross, under what Christ has done. Am I I embodying that, Lord Jesus? And if not, by your spirit, please help me to to boast about what you've done and to remind this is is how you want us to live. I want to invite the worship team to come up and let's pray together. Oh Lord Jesus, I thank you that You are the one who is still, even today, known by the scars. And Lord, we don't want to be the ones that cause wounds to one another. We don't want to be the injury party. We want to be the mending party. And Lord, we confess that sometimes in conflicts with our our brothers and sisters, and also with those in the world, Lord, being judgmental feels so righteous. But it's not. Embodying the right way, yes. Lord, you came to restore all things. You didn't come to leave things the way that they were. But you came not to judge the world, but that the world would be saved through you. Lord, we want to see members of our family, those in our community, Lord, in our nation, in the world... Lord, we want to see a great restoration take place. We believe that by your spirit, you are able to do that. But Lord, let that restoration work, Lord, take us and take work in us, in our attitudes, in our actions, that we might live lives surrendered to you. Amen.